and welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please note that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice and is purely for the purpose of education. If you've been liking what you hear, please give us a five-star rating or a comment on the podcast app you use to listen. Since most of you are on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating or comment on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to keep creating great content. So today we have a very special guest, and we're going to talk about her experience with long COVID. But before we get started, I just want to define long COVID. So long COVID has a range of symptoms that can manifest in people weeks after their initial infection. They can be new, ongoing, or returning health problems that occur more than four weeks after first being infected with the virus that causes COVID-19. Common symptoms include tiredness or fatigue, brain fog, difficulty thinking, headache, chest pain, dizziness, loss of taste or smell, difficulty breathing, cough, joint or muscle pain, depression or anxiety, fever, and heart palpitations. So today we're talking with Melissa Lynch about long COVID. And so her daughter Wednesday is 12 years old and was infected with COVID in September of 2020. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. And so she's continued to struggle with the severe health problems she's developed since her initial infection, despite having cleared the virus. And so because of the struggles they faced, even in obtaining a diagnosis, Today, we're going to talk about long COVID in kids and what Melissa has been doing to try to improve diagnoses and treatments for kids. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. So grateful to have you here with us today. So tell me a little bit about your background. Um, You're in medicine, but currently you're staying home and caring for Wednesday. Is that right? That is correct. I'm a CMA RMA of 26 years. I mostly worked clinical, and I'm now at home um, for the past few years because I always said if I wanted to stay home with my kids, it would be during the teenage years versus the tiny years because (laughs) they needed to be influenced just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So when you first heard about the COVID pandemic, kind of what were your thoughts? Well, I, I knew that the misinformation that was coming out at the beginning uh, was uh, going to cause problems because if you don't jump on a virus uh, immediately, especially uh, with a pandemic, then it's going to do what it's done. And the virus has no timeline. It has no, um, you know, its life cycle is mutate, repeat, strengthen, mutate. So... I believe you guys found out Wednesday was infected with SARS-CoV-2 shortly after she attended a school event. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. It was actually um, at her uh, one of the gyms. We had just moved on September 1st, and they had yet to run our internet, and she was complete virtual at that time in school. Mm-hmm. And so we went to a friend of mine's gym, And she was exposed from a 16-year-old that was uh, going in person and was, you know, did not know that she had it. And so what were Wednesday's initial symptoms? A loss of smell. Uh, She was tired, no fever, a little bit of mild headache, no cough, no abnormal breathing until about, I would say, she was diagnosed 
exposed the 4th. We learned about it on the 7th. Positive test on the 17th. I would say on the 20th, because she was put in a virtual hospital for COVID-positive kids. Uh, Her oxygen levels dropped down to 71 for about three days. But other than that, that was the extent of her symptoms. So she started having some shortness of breath with the low oxygen levels. She was feeling more fatigued or uh, she felt great and had those low oxygen levels. She felt great. And, you know, you couldn't really tell a lot of times. She felt great, but her oxygens were like extremely, extremely low because I was having to monitor her vitals uh, every two hours around the clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would do um, her O2 stats and her pulse, um, which a lot of times she would have um, a tachycardia. And, you know, along with just resting, it would get up to like 120. And just to clarify for the listeners, tachycardia is when your heart is too fast. And so in most people, that's a heart rate over 100. Thank you. But um, that was pretty much it. We administered albuterol inhalers and albuterol through the nebulizer. And uh, they told me to stop that. And if her oxygens had dropped down to 80, to actually bring her in person. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. There were quite a few patients with COVID that I saw who had oxygen levels that were very low. You know, you're talking 70s or I had a colleague who had a patient with oxygen levels in the 50s or oxygen saturation and the the patient wasn't short of breath. The patient looked clinically fine, but, you know, the oxygen is just very, very low or the oxygen saturation is low. So I'm assuming she started to feel a little better after this initial period. Did she ever kind of feel like she was healed or has she struggled with some symptom constantly over the last year? She felt right after the initial um, acute infection, she felt decent, I would say, but she still had the real pale look with the dark circles under her eyes. Uh, she was released from the virtual hospital at uh, on the 28th, and the 29th, uh, she was released to go back to normal activities, and by that time, we had put her in rotation. Um, North Carolina here was on two days in person and three days complete virtual uh, because she just learns better in person. She's more of a visual person and she went to school. She was fine that day. On the 30th, I went to go wake her up and she was extremely lethargic. I had lost her sense of smell again, still no fever, but just mainly the fatigue to the point of it kind of you know, puts you in place of putting a, you know, a sleeping, extremely sleepy person next to you in the car. And so after that, she declined again or started to improve? Or is that kind of when you realized that COVID wasn't going away for her? She mainly had extreme fatigue to the point uh, in October we even had to pull her out of school to homeschool her to give her the flexibility. Uh, She would go down to pet the dogs and fall asleep just in the floor or wherever she was sitting. She couldn't stay awake during the um, virtual classes, and we just thought it would be best 
to give her that flexibility to pull her out and homeschool her at that time. The fatigue continued all the way through December. She started having a little bit of fever, I would say, about November, December. So they ran tests and tested her for MISC and other autoimmune disorders to rule that out. And they did an EKG and they found a uh, incomplete right bundle branch block from the COVID on her heart. So we went to a cardiologist. I had a, already spoken with the cardiologist twice, office twice, to work up and give them the family history, her timeline of her COVID. And they thought we were there for sports clearance, had not heard of long COVID, and released her to completely normal, which lasted about two weeks. And on January 23rd, she spiked a fever of 103.2, was in the bed for three days, and we are on now uh, her 11th, I call them waves, because I have lupus. And, you know, that's the way I describe it. It comes in waves. You know, uh, we're on wave 11 that started about three weeks ago, and that was a seizure out of nowhere. And so before that, she had no seizure history. No, this was just completely normal cheerleader bouncing off the wall. She was she she is ADD ADHD, but they had taken her off of her medicines, and you know it was not my normal child that was out there bouncing on the trampoline or flipping in the yard or whatever. So you guys really struggled with getting a diagnosis. Can you tell me a little bit about? when you realized that you were dealing with long COVID and how you had to go about actually officially getting a diagnosis? Her primary actually gave her the diagnosis of post-acute COVID. It was confirmed when she was sent to um, an infectious disease doctor. And this was in February after, you know, relapsing January 23rd. We, uh, had additional tests ran. I know we had at least five sets of labs ran between um, her primary and the infectious disease. And her antibodies did come back positive. That was at, I would say, eight months out still. And, it, it, you know, her symptoms varied and they continued to get worse. She started passing out, blacking out. Her fever would spike above 101.2. And the eighth wave that we had, her fever of 102 lasted for an entire month. Wow. Yeah, that's another thing that, or that I've heard a lot of long COVID patients complain of is these chronic fevers that just really don't go away. Or if they do go away, it's just for a short period before they kind of come back. And she had brain fog, she had confusion, she had memory loss. She she was a straight-A student, came out uh, ninth grade level of fifth grade in English, seventh grade in math. When she was assessed uh, for uh, neuropsychological, uh, she was two grade levels behind and performing only at 31% in her school work. So it's really affected her learning as well. Yes. So you mentioned she started to feel maybe a little bit better after getting vaccinated. Can you tell me a little more about that? Uh, she received her first immunization, and she came actually to me. Her clarity had come back. It's not completely full, but uh, her clarity has come back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And her energy level, she said, Mom, it gives me energy. It's given me energy. Um, the seizure actually happened between the first immunization and the second one, 
but it had nothing to do with the immunization. They ruled that out. The second one, it kind of put her in the bed for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and she still lagged Me with <laughs> just mild cold symptoms. Yeah. So how is she doing now? She's doing a lot better. She still struggles a lot because it's affected her um, mentally in a way, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because she was isolated so much last year from sure. them because, you know, the protocols were, if you even had any symptoms at all, that was immediately going lockdown, basically, yeah. or quarantined for 10 to 14 days. Yeah, I think depression and anxiety are something that a lot of patients who've had COVID have experienced after having COVID. And mm-hmm. I think so many people in general have experienced over the last year just because of what you mentioned, the isolation. And well, at 12 years old, you know, you're only learning, uh, you're yeah. trying to figure out who you are anyways at that time. Yeah. And your socialization yeah. is extremely, you know, vital to that. Mm-hmm. At that point, she we went through the stages first of her grades slipping because she was a straight-A student. And then we went through, why am I the only one? Am I the only one out there that's going through this? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we just missed our friends in general and being able to go out or being going yeah. to school and doing normal things. And it, that really, I think, affected her the most, that she couldn't have that social, inter- you know, interaction either because of the symptoms being so bad that she had to, she couldn't have the energy to do it. Yeah, that's so tough, especially at that age. So what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about long COVID? It's real. It's real. No matter how much that you think it's not and how much that it doesn't affect children, it does. I'm have interviewed lots and lots of families across the nation and globally. And there are children that are normal and healthy that end up wheelchair-bound and hospital bed-bound at this point after long COVID. And they're lasting into, some of them are 12 to 15 months. I think that's a great point that you bring up because even within the medical community, you hear people often say like, oh, you know, you don't have to worry as much with kids. Kids aren't as affected as much. And while kids may not have as severe symptoms as often as adults do, kids still do get very severe symptoms and are still at risk as much as adults are. And so um, I think that's that's a, a very important point that you brought up. Yes, and it's mostly the asymptomatic and the mildly symptomatic, just like the adults, children that are coming down with long COVID. They'll normally have, you know, the two-week period of recovery where they feel extremely better and then start to relapse. And a lot of these children are coming out with autoimmune disorders like dysautonomia, POTS, PANS, elder syndrome, ME-CFS. And this is going to plague them for their lifetime. Yeah. So what is one thing you wish the medical community knew about long COVID? Take the 15 minutes. Listen to your patients. The extra 15 minutes. I used to run and tell them, you know, my doctors that I worked with, the natives are getting restless, you're behind. But that's what they want and we need is for somebody to believe. Even though the tests are coming back, you know, normal on the majority of them, they are showing no systemic inflammation, that they are still having their symptoms. And it's not all 
mental. Yeah. It's not all, you know, psychiatric. It is affecting them, and it's affecting multiple systems within the body, and not just you know, one, but like I said, you've got the cardiological with Wednesday that happened. You had the neurological, and now we have the neuropsychiatric, and also the mental health part. And also, we need, we, we've, we're starting to get the multi-subspecialty units put up for adults, but it's very important. There's very, very, very few children multi-subspecialties. It's going to, as with any diagnosis that needs a specialist, the primary diagnosis and then refers and a lot of these referrals are taking a month to get in to each one with a multi-subspecialty you know everybody's working together to assess that patient like we've had to wait a month to get into cardiology this time around we have had to wait a month and a half to get into neurology and in in the ER even when we after she had her uh, seizure they didn't even do the basic uh, follow the light neurological assessment yeah i think one of the the most important things that you are bringing up is just how difficult it can be to get physicians to listen to the patients, the patient's family, and that things are not normal. Because a lot of times we're very dependent on lab results. And so, you know, we might look, oh, these lab results all look great. So you must be fine. And if you're not fine, it's probably anxiety. And so I think with something like long COVID, where there's not a specific lab test that you can do to diagnose, it's more a diagnosis of exclusion, it's really critical for families to be able to get into these specialists to make sure there isn't a primary neurologic problem or a primary cardiac problem or something along those lines. And so, like I said before, those are all really, really important, really great points that you bring up about how critical it is for families to have access to this sort of care. What the wait time is now for the pediatric post-COVID care units are close to, I think, four months right now to get in, four to six months. And it's just not a United States problem. It's a global problem. And these children's health are declining the more and more that they wait. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a global problem. There's a lot of places where I've worked abroad where access to care is a huge barrier for patients. Um, so it's it's definitely not something that's just in the U.S., but hopefully, you know, it sounds like this is something you've really started to approach and try to solve with Long COVID Kids USA as well as Long COVID Kids Global. So can you tell us a little bit about those organizations and what you're doing to help bring some light to these issues? I found Long COVID Kids on Facebook and joined them probably, I think, in October when she got uh, diagnosed with actual Long COVID. And because there was nothing, you know, online over here for children. And they stood out because they were specifically children. And I got involved with their group. And they offered, you know, accurate medical resources and went from there. And uh, I was advocating for um, another group for long COVID, but they did both adult or mostly adults. The founders, uh, Sammy and Fran, are all mothers 
of long COVID children. And we met and I got called up and asked if I would like to take over Long COVID Kids USA. And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing what I'm doing. If there is not a pathway, I'm going to move the mountain and make it for those who follow behind her. And I have done that on legislation, school policies. I'm working with getting all resources in one area. Just, you know, I want all in one spot because prevention really is the key. Preventing COVID is preventing long COVID. And we're here for support. We participate in studies. We have the Long COVID Kids Study out of the Global or at headquarters from the UK. They've already been through the Delta variant, and the Delta variant's just now starting to get going here in the United States. So what is one thing that every person at home can do to help you or to help Wednesday or to help Long COVID Kids USA and Long COVID Kids Global? Go on our website. We have a school informational packet. We just updated it for international to go along with every type of, you know, school system or district or whatever, because I know America breaks it down, whereas, you know, another country doesn't. And, but it's it was just released. It's up there for download. It is an extremely, an extremely important. I used it whenever she was being assessed at school to show, you know, this is what's happening because the educators were not educated. They had just been given the CDC recommendations on how to do social distancing and masks and and sanitization, but they weren't aware of the possible outcomes of lingering medical effects from SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I think that's something that is pretty common, even among the medical community. Again, like we talked about before, where people always assume, oh, kids will be fine, they they're going to be fine. They might get it. They might be asymptomatic and not have any problems. So I think what you guys are doing is so important in advocating for more information available to educators and the medical community and anyone outside of medicine or education. Are there uh, any last words of wisdom or any additional information you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. Prevention. It's up to you on how you handle the masks, the immunizations, but speak out and make sure that your school board, you know, has accommodations ready for in case you're, you know, like the Russian roulette type, you know, and your child comes down with it. We have children that are even age two with long COVID and we have children all the way up to 20. And it is uh, extremely heartbreaking. As a mom, I can't even begin to imagine what you guys are experiencing and what you're going through. So I commend you for the work that you're doing. And, you know, as a physician, I will do my part to help get this information out to other people. Well, Elena, thank you so much for what you do. Oh, thank you. I'm just doing my job. I miss working clinical. I really do. Well, one of these days, when the time is right, you can get back to it. I'm getting ready to go up there and sit on the who, though, and have a global voice. I'm working on that, sitting on the seal. That's important. All right. Well, that just about wraps things up for us today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to send this episode to someone you know who might benefit from learning about long COVID in kids. 
If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so leave us a comment or reach out to us on Instagram at The Emergency Docs. Until next time. Thank you.